right. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the show. You're listening to the Post Money Plan Podcast. My name is Dallas Post, and I am your host. As always, I believe empowerment comes through knowledge, so my purpose here is to inform, educate, and stimulate thought on topics within personal finance, economics, and investing. Don't forget you can find us at postmoneyplan.com or search the Post Money Plan in the iTunes podcast app or in Google Play. So today I wanted to do a little update on cryptocurrencies and the whole subject of ICOs or initial coin offerings that has been kind of going crazy over the last few months. I have Daryl Malone on the show with me today. He's going to give us some perspective from the inside on the cryptocurrency industry, some of the developments that have been happening, and the whole process that's been going on with ICOs. So welcome to the show. Hey, glad to be here. Give us a little bit of your background. So currently you are the CIO of CoinVault ATM, and CoinVault is a startup that offers ATM services for cryptocurrencies, correct? Right, exactly. So we are essentially a gateway to the blockchain. So for most people, cryptocurrencies can seem like something that's kind of out of reach, uh, difficult to understand, difficult to grasp. We kind of bring it down to earth so you can walk up to one of our ATMs and with just your cell phone and some cash, you can buy or sell Bitcoin right there. So that's kind of our goal is to make it easily accessible to anyone in the world. The last podcast that I did on cryptocurrencies was back in May. At that time, Bitcoin was all, all the way at the lowly level of about $1,700 <laughs> for Bitcoin, and Ether was at 160 Now that when we're recording this, Bitcoin's closer to over 4300 and Ether's at 325 so the Bitcoin's up 150% since then, and uh, Ether's up 100% since then, and we're only talking a matter of three months. Back then, they had really been going crazy. I mean, they're still very volatile, but in a relative sense, they've actually calmed down since then. Obviously, they're still extremely volatile relative to other assets. Mm -hmm. Like I said, I wanted to get your insight in terms of you have some insight that the average person isn't going to know about cryptocurrencies since you're involved in the industry. You see the developments that are going on. But before we get into that, could you just give us a little bit more on your background and your experience in the industry and leading up till now? Yeah, absolutely. So I am a serial entrepreneur. I started my first business right out of college just doing video game tournaments. Expanded and grew from there. Had a big interest in software development and things like that. I was writing code pretty much in middle school all the way on up and eventually got to the point where my video game tournament business was turning out to be way too much work for the actual time I was putting in. So one of my friends said, dude, why don't you just code? And I don't know why I didn't think of it before, but I was like, oh yeah, maybe that is a good idea. So um, got into doing freelance development, eventually came across my co-founder of CoinVault ATM, who was in Austin for one of the Bitcoin conferences there. And this was when Bitcoin was still even more obscure than it is today. I think it was right around Mount Gox. Uh, Mount Gox had not happened yet at this point, actually. And so we started working on developing some of the ATMs. He had had the company going for a little while, needed some help on the development end, which I was more than happy to provide. Everything kind of grew from there. It's funny how those things you just kind of a lot of times fall into you don't quite know that it's going to happen ahead of time, but right. it just happens that way. Yeah, and it was always, um, for me, Bitcoin came at a time when I was really interested in economics in general. I've always been kind of an autodidact, so I try to study different things. 
At this time, I was involved in working on alternative economics. So local currencies, currencies for farmers markets, things like that. And in one of those conferences, I kind of was exposed to Bitcoin and immediately saw that as something that was very interesting, especially from just looking at the money system that we have. Bitcoin struck me as something that was a way to bring more transparency to it, in a way, equality to it. So I kind of took to it. Okay, then tell us a little bit more about the service that CoinVault ATM is is offering and, and the development for the business that's happened over time. Sure. So as I mentioned, CoinVault is essentially the gateway to the blockchain. So we're the easiest path of access. Uh, We allow instantaneous buying and selling with cash at our ATMs. That's essentially our goal is to make it more accessible. So if you think of the ATM world, you have the Cirrus and the Pulse and things like that. So CoinVault ATM is essentially that for cryptocurrencies. Right now, it's starting with Bitcoin, moving on to Ethereum. But eventually, we want to bring in more and more blockchain properties and make them more accessible. So that the average person feels like they can get access to this kind of stuff? Absolutely. Okay, so then just touching on, on what you were mentioning about the economics, what is your perspective on the history of Bitcoin and, and why it came to be and, and that kind of stuff? Sure. I think really the time that it was introduced says it all. Bitcoin made its first public appearance right around the 2008 crash. There had been a lot of attempts to develop things like that in the past that had never really caught on. So Bitcoin definitely was not the first electronic money system. I mean, obviously there was PayPal and things like that. But even if you think about other ways of managing that payment processing aspect that can avoid banks entirely, there were other ways to do that. And a lot of the ones early on tried to integrate themselves with the banking system. And similar to the story of Blockbuster and Netflix, it was just not not accepted. And in this case, it was probably a little bit before its time. There were still some things that need to be developed for Bitcoin to work. And I think what really happened is Satoshi Nakamoto, which was the creator of Bitcoin, he essentially took the same principles that came from things like Torrents, uTorrent, Napster, that sort of thing, where you have these decentralized systems kind of working together. Combine that with a form of cryptography that allowed these different systems to work together in a way that was completely trustless and in a way that was completely auditable. So you're taking out the third party, the middleman that needs to verify transactions in in like a regular system? Exactly, exactly. In the Bitcoin network, all computers are created equal, right? So there's no one node that can just change any value. Right. There's no admin. There's no leader that can just say, okay, well, this person, you know, let's say we need to do a chargeback or whatever. We're going to send these coins back to another person. You can't do that in Bitcoin. Every transaction that happens is permanent. Because of that, it makes it a completely trustless system. It makes it a completely um, auditable system where you know that if something happened, it's because the majority of the nodes or computers that are running the Bitcoin network agreed that mathematically this was the proper thing to happen. So it, it really is kind of an evolution in just using some tools that were already available, putting them together in such a way that you get an innovative response. But that was really the big differentiator, right, between going from like PayPal or Venmo or something right. like that to Bitcoin. You have this blockchain which where these transactions are, are verified on the, the ledger, independent of a third party. 
exactly. even independent of dollars. Exactly. Yeah. So there is no, like, for example, PayPal controls your account. PayPal decides, well, we're going to lock you out of your account, which has happened to people. You know, a uh, famous example is uh, Julian Assange and WikiLeaks. Yeah. When they were under a lot of pressure, PayPal cut off their accounts and they weren't able to accept donations. All of a sudden, they were to able to use Bitcoin to circumvent a lot of those mechanisms. So say what you will about Julian Assange or WikiLeaks or whatever. <laughs> at the end of the day, freedom of speech is freedom of speech. Yeah. And whoever it is, there shouldn't be anyone who is standing in the way of getting whatever message you want to get across just because they think that you shouldn't say it. So it's just a matter of everyone having individual access to their own account or wallet or whatever you want to call it, and there's not a third party that's required to verify or government or whoever that's over your shoulder to say whether or not you're allowed to have the money or not. Yeah, I mean, the idea behind Bitcoin was you be your own bank, right? That was the big slogan that was tossed around. That's really what, what it comes down to. When you're running a node, and you're part of the Bitcoin network, you are essentially an independent financial institution. You can verify transactions, you can, something's going on in the network that is illegal or you find is against the rules, your node will call that out. You really are a player in this marketplace in a way that you can't be just as a customer of, of any given bank. So I want to get your perspective on this because the thing that really attracted me to cryptocurrencies was the negative side of what I see in our current money system in terms of fiat currencies that governments have control of through central banks mm -hmm. and the kind of unfortunate but inevitable uh, situation where you have, when a government has access to print unlimited amounts of its paper currency, yeah. you have the temptation and it becomes more than just a temptation but like an inevitability that if you can print your own money, you're going to spend more than you have. Well, it's actually even worse than that, right? Because, I mean, there's there have been cases of where governments overprint or dilute their currency or whatever. Like, famous example is Rome, where they found they could plate lead with gold or what have you and essentially dilute their money by using less actual gold than they had uh, to basically fake like they had more than they had. And what's going on today is at just a ridiculous scale. As you probably know, most money these days, even beyond Bitcoin, is digital. When you go to your bank account, it's just numbers on a computer. There's not necessarily dollars there to back that up. There's not necessarily anything of value there to back that up. And Currents. that's why economists have such a hard time tracking everything because the economists say, okay, we have M1 money supply, we have mm -hmm. M2 money supply, M3 money supply, and the regular person doesn't understand, like, what the heck are you talking about? Because right. I, I have a dollar in my wallet. I know what that is. But like you said, in reality, only... Uh, I don't know what it is off the top of my head. I think it's only like less than 10% of the actual money in our system, depending on what you call money, mm -hmm. is actual dollar bills that are printed and, and can be found somewhere. Right. And most of it is electronically in, an, in like a checking account. Then you have things that are in money market accounts, which you could debate whether you call that money. Right. And then you could include other things that are different kinds of assets that you could consider money, but maybe not. And it just goes on from there. But that's much more than the actual dollar bills that are printed. Right. It's very strange for the average person. Yeah, because it's not something that you would really think of. Like you think of if you have money, that money represents some kind of value. But in actuality, our money represents really debt. Every single dollar that's created in this country is created as a loan. So when you go to a bank and let's say you want to buy a house or whatever, and they say, okay, well, we're going to give you a $300,000 
mortgage, right? The bank, number one, doesn't have to have $300,000 to do that. Really, they only have to have 10% of that. So they can take $30,000 that they have and turn that into $300,000 that they give you. So they're giving you money literally that they don't have, and they expect you to pay it back to them. Yeah, like that's, that's the, the fractional reserve system. It, it's pretty crazy. Like it's, it's legalized theft, basically. <laughs> like if I go up to you and I write you a note that says, oh, yeah, you totally have $300,000, I promise. And then if you don't give me $300,000 back, I take your stuff. I've robbed you because yeah, I yeah. couldn't have afforded to buy that house on my own. Yeah, yeah. But somehow I have the power to let you do it. It's it's a completely ridiculous system. system. Yeah, yeah. Just going back to that part of that fractional reserve system and then the governments having the access to print whatever money they want. In the end, I think the result is the same every time, which is inflation. Right. Because if you have a government that's spending more than it, it makes – then eventually you have to print more, you have to expand the currency supply, and then people realize that there's more of them in circulation. They want them less, so they're, they're worth less. And that's what we're seeing in, in Venezuela right now, for right. example. It's not as extreme here and won't be for a while, I don't think, but inevitably that happens in every country. And you hear the stories, you know, your grandparents will say, you know, I used to go to the store when I was a kid and I'd buy a handful of candy for a nickel or whatever. Yeah. That is inflation. The, the value of the dollar goes down over time because of that. Right. And that's what that is. So to me, these things happening, and especially around 2008, that big crash that was precipitated because of the whole like fractional reserve banking system and then banks making loans that weren't necessarily going to get paid back because mm -hmm. they were just making them indiscriminately and right. a whole bunch of other problems. But that almost caused an entire heart attack to the world economy. And then people are looking at that and saying, like, we don't want this to be the only option. If there was some other option or alternative form of money, and I think that situation was the breeding ground to give birth to Bitcoin and then subsequently other cryptocurrencies. Right. Yeah. And I think Bitcoin essentially became, a lot of people will call this form of digital gold, just because of the way that the algorithm works. It solves the problem of being able to duplicate digital items or what have you by creating a permanent ledger. So you can actually prove a negative with Bitcoin. So you can prove not only that something exists in a database or whatever, I can prove that I have 100 Bitcoin to send to someone, but I can also prove that I haven't sent that 100 Bitcoin to someone else. And by doing that, you know that if I send it to you, it's a valid transaction. You can go throughout the entire history, see, okay, I see where this Bitcoin was generated in the first place. I see how it got into this person's wallet. And I see that they're now trying to send it for the first time. You can prove the entire chain of custody. And that's something that really was not possible with digital items before. And so because you have that limit on what you can create in a way that there isn't with just a standard bank account sitting on a database... That's where you cut out those uh, possibilities for abuse. In addition to that, going back to the inflation point, when Bitcoin was created, they set it so that there was a finite amount of Bitcoins that would ever be mined. We're going to hit a finite amount of Bitcoins that will ever exist, which is in direct contradiction to the regular fiat currencies mm -hmm. that can be infinitely printed just as long as they can run the printing presses. And that circumvents the, the inflation problem of a currency in the sense that if it's continuously printed, you run the risk of your currency being devalued. So if right. I just sit on dollars in my bank account, 
over time, I'm, I'm going to have less and less purchasing power. Right. But if you have a finite supply of something, so if there's a finite supply of Bitcoins that will ever exist, I don't run that same risk that if I sit on Bitcoins in my account, that they're just going to deteriorate if people use them as currency, mm -hmm. that they're not going to just deteriorate into being worth nothing the same way that uh, a dollar would. Yeah, exactly. And that, that deflationary property of Bitcoin does have its own risk. There is the possibility of the credit system locking up and things like that, which is a real issue. There is a reason that you have credit, right? There is a reason that you have the ability to kind of expand the pool of money whenever you need to get things done. But at the same time, there's ways to abuse that. So it's, it's all about finding a balance. And I think the balance swung, the pendulum swung one way, and Bitcoin is kind of making that pendulum swing back. For me, I, you know, I wouldn't say like get rid of all other options and only have Bitcoin for, or cryptocurrency, for example, but it existing and being one more alternative in the money system, right. I think, is a very healthy thing for the economy just so that there's alternatives so that you can still conduct business so that you have different options, that you have a currency that transcends borders. Right. Um, if one currency fails, then another one is, is there for people to rely on, you know, so... If I start to lose faith in dollars, I could use cryptocurrency. If I start to lose faith in one cryptocurrency, I could use the next. Or if I start right. to lose faith in those, I could use gold or something. You know, yeah, and that's already that's already happened. Bitcoin is split just recently. So now you have Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash, which came as a result of some of the turmoil in the Bitcoin governance structure, uh, which we can talk about if you want to get into that. But yeah, because of the fact that it's open source and because of the fact that that code can easily be replicated, can easily be cloned, Miners can choose to run whatever they want to run. People can choose to spend whatever they want to spend. So it really is something where there is no there is no fiat. Nobody's forcing anybody to use Bitcoin. You know, so it does have that market appeal where it has to work in a way that makes people want to use it. Yeah, right. Yeah. And if it doesn't, someone's gonna come and steal their thunder. And the the value of them is based on people's wanting them and not wanting right. them. Right. So if nobody wants them, they're not worth anything. If everyone wants them, they're worth a lot. Exactly. Which is kind of the same as everything. But right. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay, so I, I want to tap into some of your technical expertise. So tell us a little bit about exchanging and storing cryptocurrencies and how that some of that's come to be because of the process of, like, Mt. Gox, for example. Like right. Tell us some of, about that. Right. So Mt. Gox was essentially the first Bitcoin exchange where you had an online exchange you could put in your credit card, put in your bank account, wire money, whatever, and you could buy Bitcoin. Before Mt. Gox, there really was no a way to do that. It was actually just kind of the, this project of some random coder who was in the Bitcoin community. It was one of the first people that was kind of transacting and spending Bitcoins. He decided to put this thing together. I mean, it was a startup, you know, it was a very early stage company. But when you're dealing with global markets, that can expand really quickly, you know, and that's essentially what happened. And so what ended up happening with Mt. Gox is that they had some security issues on their end that were exploited by people on the outside, of course, because there was a lot of money involved. So they came, they exploited the system, pulled a bunch of Bitcoin out of it, and eventually the whole thing collapsed. Just as a point of reference, we're talking early 2014. Correct. Yeah, so this was very, very early in the days of Bitcoin. And um, people lost a lot of money from that. So Mt. Gox, as a company was uh, the largest Bitcoin exchange by volume at that right. point in time. Right, I think they had like 80% of the market, and, something like that. And then there was a point in time 
I guess in February when customers started experiencing delays in their withdrawals, and that was some of the warning signs that people started to see. And eventually, what ended up happening was all the trading was halted on the exchange. Customers started to freak out, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then by the end of February, then uh, Mt. Gox files bankruptcy, claiming that it had lost. This is crazy. Seven hundred and fifty thousand customer bitcoins, yeah. which by today's amount, we're talking yeah. like four million or four billion dollars. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, they really were the market maker, and it was it was pretty hard. It hit the market really hard. It caused the price of Bitcoin to tank, obviously, and it really shook a lot of people's confidence. But what that shows you is that if you don't take advantage of the properties of Bitcoin you're really playing in the same system that exists today. Well, so the CEO was eventually arrested on charges of fraud and embezzlement, but do we know more of what exactly happened exactly? You're saying it was some theft of coins that they were holding for customers? Right. Essentially a glitch in the Mt. Gox trading communication system was exploited to force the system to send out Bitcoins. Don't want to get too technical, but basically they were hacked. It was an exploit in their system, and it just got abused over and over and over again. And people were just extracting money. They didn't have enough money to cover when uh, customers were trying to withdraw. So effectively, it became a run on the bank, where you have all these people lining up to get their money, and you have Mt. Gox saying, yeah, but but we can't. Like I said, it was, it's the same thing that happens in today's system. It's the same thing that threatened to happen in 2008, if it wasn't for the quantitative easing that alleviated a lot of that. But because that's not possible in Bitcoin, it just crashed. Outside of just Mt. Gox itself, but in terms of the whole cryptocurrency ecosystem, was that just a growing pain? Like what's improved since then and and what security measures have been taken or should people take in terms of exchanging and storing cryptocurrencies and, and that kind of stuff? Yeah, so the market has definitely matured from that. Now there are a number of different exchanges all over the world that you can choose from that are all in competition with each other. The Bitcoin system itself, the exchange system that underlies all of it, wasn't really the target. It was really that particular company and their practices around their wallets. So it was something where the business grew very quickly and reached a scale that it just was not ready for. It was a small team, you know, and just kind of grew out of control because they were providing something that obviously everybody needed, but nobody had thought to build before. And they got punished for it, for not being ready for that kind of success, essentially is what happened. Correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is they stored all the customers' Bitcoins in a quote-unquote hot wallet online versus what exchanges will do now as a security measure. We'll store them actually quote-unquote cold storage. Correct. So they'll, they'll store them offline. They can't be accessed via the internet. Right. And this is so this and this gets to the point of how Bitcoin works and how you actually can become your own bank. When you have a wallet, your wallet is accessible only by the private key attached to that wallet. So if you don't have that private key, you can't spend those Bitcoins. That's why there's a big sea of what they call lost Bitcoin, where nobody knows the private keys anymore. So those Bitcoins are essentially locked. They can't be sent anywhere. That's basically the safest way to have your Bitcoin is if you have, obviously, if nobody has the private key, they're not going anywhere. And the more that key gets proliferated, the less safe your wallet becomes. So if you have, for example, in a cold storage situation, that means you have a wallet that maybe has never sent a transaction. 
so not even its public key is exposed. So there's no information really about that wallet publicly available, but you have the private key memorized or whatever, and you can use that at any time. That's kind of the safest situation you can be in. And then as you publicly expose your wallet for the first time by sending a transaction and signing that transaction, so you're kind of exposing a little bit of how your private key can be derived into a public key. So that's one data point if you want to think about it cryptographically. But then you have a certain level of exposure. If you have a situation where you have a hot wallet, where you have a wallet that's online, that's continually making transactions, and the keys are held by a number of people because you need to be able to send the money whenever you need to send it, that's kind of the most dangerous situation, right? So that's when you're talking about an exchange or when you're talking about something where maybe it's just your wallet and you're just insecure with it or what, what have you. And so that's kind of when you're the most exposed. But at the end of the day, it's all about controlling those private keys. So if you have your wallet and you have your keys, you don't save them on a computer somewhere where they can be hacked and accessed. You don't save them on anything where somebody can find them. You don't write them down on your post-it note on your computer and just post it up there or whatever. Then that wallet is going to be secure. But if it comes to the point of using cryptocurrencies on a regular basis to buy stuff to get paid, all that kind of stuff, wouldn't that necessitate everyone having quote-unquote hot wallets and you know, you're transacting business all the time. So. Yeah, absolutely. But it's no different from having, say, a savings account and a checking account, right? If you have a cold wallet, maybe for your the majority of your holdings, and then you have a hot wallet for when you're making regular transactions, okay. you know, that's a, that's a pretty secure way to go about it. Okay. All right, so then let's transition into the flavor of the month topic of ICOs or right, initial yes. coin offerings. Just to give a little background on what's been going on over the last few months is all these different alternative coins have or altcoins have been coming out. People that are unfamiliar with industry, right? Like they've only heard of maybe Bitcoin, if anything. And mm -hmm. then and then if they know a little bit more, they've heard of Ethereum and on down the list. But now there's what, like hundreds of them that, that have sprung up over the last few months. Right. I think there's like 20 offerings a month or something like that. Just to give a little explanation of what the heck uh, ICO is, again, it's referring to an initial coin offering, and it's an informal term referring to developers raising money from initial investment from investors to code a new cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. But essentially, it's the same thing as an IPO, if you've heard of an IPO, which is an initial public offering of stock to the public. So when a company is growing and they want to sell stock to the general public uh, like for example snapchat they recently ipo'd and sold stock to the public back in uh, i guess it was march and that was like the first time a regular person could just go and buy snapchat stock mm -hmm. before that they were private and you had to be a special investor that knew them and got a chance to invest earlier on well that same process is what's happening now with all these new projects a lot of these ICOs, are they actually using the Ethereum smart contract infrastructure to do this? Some of them are, yeah. So I guess uh, just to kind of bring it back to the basics, what it comes down to is you have you have the tokens and you're selling those init that initial batch of tokens. And what those tokens represent can be different. So if you look back, I think the first ICO, or we'll call it a token sale, was uh, MasterCoin. It was floating around the BitAngels time when that was coming around. And that was uh, a fund that was essentially made to fund cryptocurrencies. 
so a lot of different projects spun off of this. Um, uh, one of my clients, full disclosure, Factum, was one of the products of this fund. But all of these were token sales. So in a normal investment scenario, you have shares of the company that you're buying. And it doesn't matter whether it's a angel investment, it doesn't matter whether it's a whatever, unless it's a debt investment, it's a sale of shares of the company. Just to give a little bit more on that particular point, whenever a company wants to raise money, what do they have to offer? They usually don't have the cash, so they're offering a piece of ownership of that company. That's right. what like a stock, a share of the company is. They're giving up ownership of that company in exchange for cash, and then they can fund their business. So an IPO is when they first offer that to the public and raise a bunch of money so that then they can fund the business to invest and grow. Right. And the ICO is essentially for the same purpose. In a way, it, it's actually kind of a mix between a stock sale and a crowdfunding scenario. Uh, so if you think about, for example, there was a big cooler craze that kind of went out. That was kind of a pre-sale. You're essentially giving money to that crowdfunding campaign because you like the cooler, you want to buy it, you want to use it, what have you. So token sales work a lot of times in the same way, where, for example, with MasterCoin, if you were part of that initial fund, it was because you wanted MasterCoins. And MasterCoins were what you needed in order to use the MasterCoin network. Uh, same thing with Ethereum. If you were to buy one of the first batches of Ethereum, it's because you wanted to use Ether and you wanted to make transactions with it. So it, it is kind of a cross. So if you think about Bitcoin itself, you have this token, which you need in order to transact on the Bitcoin network. That is essentially the fuel that is used not just to pay the miners to run the network, but also in order to use the network as a payment processing, its payment processing function. You have to have Bitcoin. But it also kind of works as a share of ownership, if you want to think about it that way, of Bitcoin because you have that percentage of the network. You own that space on the Bitcoin blockchain. So it kind of crosses those lines in that way. And in some, in some cases, it is a direct, actually acts as a share of a company. So there are some companies that will do ICOs that are literally just denote ownership of that company and they put that in their bylaws and everything like that which is a little bit more dangerous because that is what really puts you closer into the SEC territory, but people will do it. But if you have a coin that is actually used for running the network, that's a little bit different. So to pull it back to another example, think of something like there's one called storage coin and see a coin. Both of these are storage services. So they function a little bit like Dropbox. So if you think about you have this space on Dropbox, you can store files there and you pay them a fee in order for that service. Making it a little bit abstract. It's not exactly the way it works for these two coins, but you can think of it yeah, that way. Sure. The coins essentially act as payment for the service that the blockchain provides. So a lot of the ICOs will function in this manner, where even beyond the idea that you can use the coin to transact as a unit of value, that value also pays for something that is intrinsic to the service. So I think that's a little bit different. I think it's distinct enough from a stock sale where the stock is only ownership of the company. You can't actually go with shares of McDonald's and get yourself a burger. But with a lot of these ICOs, you kind of can. 
So I think a natural question for someone just like not familiar with, with the whole topic would be asking if Bitcoin exists, why is there a need to have a second Bitcoin or, mm -hmm. or you know, all these other alternative currencies? Like, why do you need more than just Bitcoin? My thinking along these lines anyway, is that the idea behind cryptocurrencies being that it's a decentralized alternative to fiat currencies controlled by governments. And what you're going to have, though, when it's decentralized is people disagreeing on the best solutions for implementing right. it. So you had a group of developers who created Bitcoin, and then you had other people who had different ideas, and they say, mm, maybe we can use this technology and do it a little bit differently in, in this way or that way, and they come up with Ethereum. Mm -hmm. And then you have another group of people who say, mm, okay, we have a different idea, and still using the technology, but in a different way of, of some different way. So, for example, Ethereum came about, they said that we can use blockchains to create smart contracts and then basically have an open platform where people can then develop further on that to create more uh, smart contracts and use that for, well, now even like ICOs. <laughs> so, in my opinion, that's how you have how you have people going different directions and coming out with like all these different alternative like, cryptocurrencies. But I mean, the, I think the thing to point out there is that not all of them function in the same way that Bitcoin does. Right, right, right. If you look at each coin as a company and you think about what services this company provide, maybe there isn't room to replace Bitcoin as the payments coin. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think that we're already seeing a lot of evolution in that space. But even if you don't want to be a part of that market, you want to go into storage. Maybe you want to go into, there was actually a group in Austin arcade city that was attempting to supplant uber with a cryptocurrency so i mean there's any number of different services that you can think of that can be provided by a decentralized system and then pay for with a decentralized currency what i think is really cool about this ability to use smart contracts and then also to use them to essentially do an ico is that I see it as a potential for the, the modern evolution of crowdfunding and, and just funding new ideas. Because one of the biggest hurdles to entrepreneurship and new business creation is funding. And if you make it easier and easier to raise funding and, and allow people to have access to those ideas, things like Kickstarter have been great in enabling people with fledgling ideas to get funding to get off the ground to get projects going ICOs are, are just a step even further from that in comparing them to like stock IPOs mm -hmm. you're enabling people anywhere in the world essentially with an internet connection to access to participate in this fledgling project that can then grow and develop and can be a part of that right now because of that the SEC Securities Exchange Commission has uh, taken interest in this subject and because it is so similar to IPOs mm -hmm. and they're meant to regulate the whole securities industry and safeguard investors. The danger when you have a completely unregulated market, especially when it's like new and, and growing like the cryptocurrency industry, is that you have the potential for fraud and scammers, especially right. when you don't have people that know what scams are because right. it's still so new. That has attracted the SEC's attention. Yeah, so the SEC had a ruling recently where they were ruling against the DAO, the Decentralized Autonomous Organization, ICO last year. 
so on that specific case, they're saying this is a security offering, so it's subject to the same regulations that would be for any securities like stocks or bond offerings or whatever, and subject to their regulations, which is a big deal to the cryptocurrency industry in terms of being regulated and slowed down a bit in terms of you can't just start a ICO tomorrow on some project that you came up with and without going through some regulatory hurdle, potentially. Right. That's the intent, but the cryptocurrency industry has not really listened. From what I've seen, that hasn't slowed down at all. So we'll have to see what the enforcement looks like on that. I think that just speaks to the whole point of the industry being somewhat anarchic. Cryptocurrency, one of the big draws is that it's outside of regulation and government control and centralization. But obviously, regulation agencies and governments aren't going to naturally be inclined to give up all their... They want their uh, piece of the pie. Authorities. <laughs> so um, this is only one phase of the story where we're going to see back and forth over the next several years. Right. Who knows how that's going to go exactly, but governments either trying to regulate or maybe even trying to adopt the technology themselves. Right. Uh, who knows what's going to happen, but... I definitely think there will be some back and forth between the regulatory bodies and the cryptocurrency industry. Yeah, I think there's going to be a little bit of both. Matter of fact, one of the big fears that's floated around the cryptocurrency community is that there's going to be a fiat cryptocurrency. And then you're just going to have a government-controlled Bitcoin or what have you, where now they have full visibility into all transactions. And they can just decide to freeze your account, take your money, and do whatever they want to do. You know, So I think that there's a lot of people who are worried about that. But yeah, at the end of the day, Bitcoin came out of a movement that really was about this kind of anarchy. Uh, it was uh, the cypherpunks, which were libertarian coders and things like that. That's, I mean, that's where it comes from. You know, that's in the DNA of cryptocurrency, really. So I think it's going to be hard to pull that down when you have a lot of really smart people that are putting their minds together to avoid being stepped on in that way. So just to kind of wrap things up here, what are uh, some of the risks there that you're talking about? Like, should people be looking out for a government to not do an ICO? I don't know if you would even call it that. To like basically governments to start coming out with their own coins? Or what to you is like the biggest thing to be looking out for on the horizon in the future? Well, I think that everyone has their own individual risk profile. Obviously, we're entrepreneurs. We have a little bit higher threshold than most people, probably. Um, and then you have those people who are just, you know, they're not going to step outside of a nine-to-five job if it kills them. And they probably want to make sure everything has some kind of stamp or whatever on it. So, I mean, people are different. We're all different. We all have different wants and needs and everything like that. Um, there's potential for fraud everywhere, whether an industry is regulated or not. I do think that there are certain times where it's helpful to have transparency and someone shining a light into things. But at the same time, you know, you have to be aware of that even a regulatory body is going to have its own agenda. So you kind of have to make your own judgments. If you are profligate, if you take big risks, you're definitely going to have some losses. So be aware of that. Don't risk more than you can afford to lose and know how far you can extend yourself. All right. Well, Definitely appreciate your insight into the industry because... Uh, Actually, is there, a, is there one more thing I can bring up? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. One of my pet projects uh, that I've been kind of putting energy into these past couple months 
is in an area that especially important to me, the criminal justice system. So I've gathered a bunch of people here in Houston to create essentially a decentralized public defender AI. Uh, so this would be a software system that allows people who may not be able to afford a high-priced lawyer to have a step up above what is offered just by the public defender system. Uh, for anybody who knows a little bit about the criminal justice system and how all of that works, a lot of times if you get a public defender, you see this person for five minutes, they don't know anything about you, they don't know anything about your case, and they're going to tell you to plea out because they can't help you, and if you go to trial, you're going to get pounded. That's what happens in the majority of cases. Some high 90 percentage of people don't get a chance to see a trial. Uh, they plea out whether they're guilty or not just to avoid any kind of retribution from a prosecutor who's pissed off about you know them taking time and money out of the judicial system or whatever, and they're not offered a fair shake. And the end result is that is that we have the largest prison population in the world by far. We have 25% of the world's prisoners with 5% of the world's population. Thinking yeah. about that is staggering. Yeah. Um, so I've been working to create this project. We have a hackathon coming up in October, on October 21st. Uh, it's going to be at Station Houston. We plan to make this the first of many and tour across the country, going into different cities, uh, pulling people into this project, and eventually getting this thing built out. Um, so I would urge anyone who is interested in this problem, anybody who is interested in just justice in general, anybody who wants to learn more about things like artificial intelligence or uh, decentralized technologies and things like that, uh, to definitely check it out. Uh, it's called The Tubman Project. So you can find us at tubmanproject.com and... I hope to see a lot of you guys there. So the real question I have is, will you have an ICO for that? <laughs> <laughs> to be determined. To be determined. <laughs> you got to tie it all together, man. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, thank you very much for sharing your insight, and uh, we'll uh, catch you next time. Thank you. Also, don't forget you can find us at postmoneyplan.com and subscribe to the Post Money Plan on iTunes, in the App Store, or in Google Play. Thank you.